Welcome to episode 178 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent on a mission to show the public who the FBI is and what the FBI does through my books, my blog, and my podcast case reviews with former colleagues. Today, we get to speak to retired agent Russell Atkinson, who served in the FBI for 25 years. He specialized in investigating high technology and intellectual property crimes in Silicon Valley and served as a legal advisor. In this episode, Russell Atkinson reviews the first trade secret theft prosecution in California under the Federal Economic Espionage Act of 1996. The case centered on the theft of radiological device technology and encrypted materials by David Kern, a former employee of a Silicon Valley tech firm. After retiring from the FBI, Russell Atkinson practiced law and also worked for several high-tech firms in the computer industry, including IBM, Fairchild Semiconductor, and AOL. Now retired, he spends his time writing crime fiction and is the author of eight mystery novels. His book, Fatal Dose, is a fictionalized account of the theft and misuse of X-ray technology and was inspired by this case. He warns that after reading Fatal Dose, you'll never look at an x-ray machine the same way. You can learn more about Russell Atkinson and his books at his Cliff Knowles Mystery website. Before we get to the interview, I want to let you know about a few things that are coming up. First, if you are in the Philadelphia area, I will be hosting a live show of FBI Retired Case File Review at the Respect Women's Podcast Festival on Saturday, August the 24th at noon. I'll be there with stickers and buttons, so I hope you can come out. I would love to meet you in person. There's more information on my website about the festival, which is being held in the super hip Amalgam Comics and Coffee House in the Fishtown section of Philly. The most important thing for you to know is it's free. And it's not just for women. Everyone is welcome. One other thing, I will be recording a special episode about FBI myths and misconceptions, a manual for armchair detectives. So if you have any questions or observations about the book, please get them to me before August the 20th. If you've already picked up your copy of FBI Myths and Misconceptions, a manual for armchair detectives, thank you. And special thanks for those of you who have posted a review on Amazon. Wow, five stars. I want this book to become the book to read if you're interested in learning more about the FBI. FBI Myths and Misconceptions is available wherever books are sold as well as the crime novels in my FBI Philadelphia Corruption Squad series. Thank you for the support. Now here's the show. I am excited to introduce my guest, Russ Atkinson. Hey, Russ, how are you? I'm fine, Jerry. How are you? I'm great. And it's so great to have you back again. You were on episode 94. We did a case review it was about a wealthy Silicon Valley businessman. 
a kidnapping. It was very popular and very interesting because people love kidnapping cases. Agents love them from the investigative standpoint. Uh, obviously, it's there's a potential for life and death there, and, and it's a horrible tragedy when it happens. And even if even if the person is recovered safe, um, it's still very painful to the family, very difficult for the victim and the rest of the family. And I guess one of the things about kidnapping, which makes it interesting for investigators, is that all of the FBI and all of our law enforcement partners' resources and manpower are put to task all at the same time in this heroic effort to find the person who's been kidnapped and and bring them home safely. Yes, that is certainly true. And it's in very much of a contrast with my current case, which was really just a one-man case, which is a much more typical case in the FBI. All right. So this case that we're going to talk about today takes us back to Silicon Valley. But this time, we are going to be talking about a case that was a front runner. That's not the word I want to use. What's the word I want to use? (laughs) Well, it was the first prosecution under this statute in California. It was a brand new statute, so it was a trailblazer. Maybe thank the word. you. Yeah, I think that's I think that's the word I wanted to use. It was a trailblazer when it comes to investigations involving economic espionage. But this really wasn't an economic espionage case. It was a, a trade secret theft. What's the difference? Yeah, that's a good question. Let's go back uh, prior to 1996. Congress and a whole bunch of uh, sources, the media, and so forth, all became quite aware of the fact that technology was a wave of the future. It was driving, it was going to be the the key to who was going to have power economically, politically, and and so forth. And it was changing so fast. The criminals were quick to pick up on that and were already starting to steal stuff, start their own businesses, sell it to competitors, go overseas to other nations, and weaken America's position. But there were no federal laws on the books to deal with that. It was being handled in a mishmash way with the uh, local laws and certain other federal laws. And so in 1996, Congress passed the Economic Espionage Act of 1996. That's right in the title. And it was signed into law. And it created two crimes. One was trade secret theft and one was economic espionage. They both involved the theft of trade secrets. But the big difference is with economic espionage, in order to meet the elements of the statute, there had to be the theft either with the intent to benefit or knowing that it would benefit a foreign power, either a foreign government or a foreign institution, I think they call it. Uh, With trade secret theft, you don't need the foreign aspect, but you do need an interstate aspect. And that's simply because of federal jurisdiction. The first statute, the Economic Espionage, uh, uses the constitutional power of the U.S. government to conduct foreign policy and provide for the security of the country. The second statute, the Trade Secret Theft, uh, doesn't have that. So it has to rely on the Interstate Commerce Clause to justify why they're regulating it on a federal basis. Thank you for the uh, explanation. Could you set the stage? 
by letting us know, reminding us what squad you're on and why this particular type of case would fall on your desk. Well, I was transferred over to San Jose in 1991, basically to work high-tech matters. Uh, The SAC was aware that that was the coming thing, but there was no official high-tech squad at that time. So I was on the violent crime squad. So the previous case that I uh, told you about that I was on this podcast uh, for the kidnapping case of the president of Adobe Systems, I was not officially on the high-tech squad, but we were still mostly doing high-tech work on the violent crime squad. And a couple of years later, they formed the high-tech squad in Silicon Valley. I was working in the San Jose Resident Agency. And you're, of course, a bureau person, so you know that what a resident agency is, but you may have the wrong idea about San Jose because it's the 10th largest city in the country. And we had four squads prior to that time and then five squads once the high-tech squad was formed. So that's bigger than the first division that I worked in. Wow. Yeah. For people listening, most resident agencies would have anywhere from one agent (laughs) working in it. And maybe, to me, a a large resident agency would have 10 agents working in it. So having one where you have four or five squads, that's a huge resident agency, probably getting close to the size of some of the smaller divisions. Yeah, well, I'm sure it's bigger than some of the divisions. I, I believe the last I heard, of course, I've been out of the bureau now for over 20 years. So uh, I don't keep abreast of all of it. Last I heard, they had seven squads in San Jose RA and a dedicated ASAC. So it's it's a big RA. Yeah, and I can understand it. I mean, there they've been some unbelievable tech company fraud cases that, uh, as you know, ha- have been in the news. So those guys are keeping very busy out there in, uh, in Silicon Valley. Let's get started. So okay. when when did you first learn about this particular case that we're going to talk about today? Well, for me, it started with a phone call. Uh, it was from a woman who was an attorney working for Varian Associates. It's a high-tech firm in uh, Silicon Valley, uh, in Palo Alto. They make all kinds of radio, radiological equipment, among other things. I don't know everything they make, but I'm aware of two big product lines that they have. The reason she called me was because I had previously uh, brought a case to her of what was really trade secret theft. But it uh, since it took place prior to 1996, it uh, wasn't eligible for prosecution under the Federal Trade Secret Theft Act. But we did prosecute that case. Uh, one of Varian's employees at that time had been stealing engineering drawings and giving them to a competitor. These were uh, spare parts for these big machines that make chips. They use, uh, there's a lot of radiation uh, involved in burning the patterns on, on chips. And Varian had a system, very expensive system and very expensive spare parts. And so that guy had, uh, was one of several people who'd been recruited by a competitor. Who was selling the spare parts. So that case had worked out well for her and her company. So she called me and said she had another case. It was a 
This worked on a different product line. The product line for this were these medical devices used to treat cancer patients. Those great big uh, things that fill a room and zap the, the tumors. They're very dangerous type machines and so forth. Anyway, Varian is the leader in making those things. Dangerous in, in, in what terms? Well, they produce very strong radiation. In an overdose, they could burn or even kill a person. So okay. they have to be carefully calibrated and good adjustment and good maintenance at all times. Okay, definitely a, a skilled technician. Yes. So she, she called me up and said uh, she had this case, wanted to know if I'd be interested. There were two things that interested me about it. From the professional standpoint, I was really interested because from the way she described it, it looked like it may be prosecutable under the Economic Espionage Act as a trade secret theft, not as an economic espionage. And we, we did not at that time have any of those. And there were a few cases popping up under this new law around the FBI. And we sort of felt like we were behind the curve on that. We felt like we should be among the leaders here in Silicon Valley on protecting trade secrets. There was a case in Southern California that had begun. I can't remember if it had already been charged at that point. I think it had been. But it had, although it had begun in Southern California, kind of interesting. Uh, from what I understand, in that case, I think it was an aerospace company that had been ripped off. And it was decided down there that the judicial environment wasn't that friendly down there. So they arranged with a cooperating witness to have the trade secrets, the stolen material, delivered in Texas. I don't know all the thinking that went into that, but the end result was that that case was prosecuted in Texas. So there still had not been a case in California under the new law. So that was the first reason I was interested. I thought we could be a pioneer on this one. And the second thing that fascinated me about it was that it was cryptography related. One of the things that the lawyer told me was that the defendant, the man who ended up being the subject of the case, David Kern, had somehow not only obtained encrypted trade secrets, but he had managed to decrypt them somehow to decipher them and, and read them in the clear. And I didn't see how that was possible with the sophistication of modern computer cryptography. But I'm, I've been a longtime cryptography fan. I'm a former president of the American Cryptogram Association and run a blog now, a website called Recreational Cryptography. So uh, I've been a member of the American Cryptogram Association since the 1970s. So just on a personal level, I found it very attractive, very fascinating. Could you just break it down for us? I guess it's a, a, a coding and decoding method. Right. It's basically just uh, scrambling a message so that it becomes unreadable to anyone who doesn't have the key. So that even if it's intercepted, and even if the person who intercepts it knows the system that was used to encode it, encryption just means either using a code or using a cipher, any form of scrambling and, and concealing a message. Anyway, if the person doesn't have the key to it, they can't read it. It's just a way to transfer information secretly. 
so you're telling us that the materials that Kern took were encrypted. And what was interesting was that he was able to unencrypt it. <laughs> Decrypt it. Decrypt it in order to, to access the trade secrets. Yeah, that, that would be interesting, especially if you know, you know, that it would, it would have been extremely difficult for him to do without having the codes. So I could see why you would be interested, you know, based right. on, yeah, based on your, your background and your interests. Yeah, that's the kind of thing where you think maybe NSA could do it, you know, dealing with uh, foreign secrets and they have Cray computers and all that, but uh, an ordinary individual shouldn't be able to to gain access to an encrypted file like that. So that's how it got started. Could you give us a little background about who Kern is? David Kern, an engineer, he was at that time a former Varian employee. When he was working at Varian, he was one of these uh, people who would go out to hospitals and other places to install these machines and to service them. And if there was something wrong, he would he would put in updates and upgrades and troubleshoot any problems, calibrate them and all that sort of thing. So that was his job. That's what it was at one time. And they brought him back into the headquarters because he had trouble. Apparently, he antagonized customers. He His personality was just that kind of a person. So they brought him back into headquarters, and he was working on some kind of software project there. I don't know exactly what his detail, um, details of his job were. But he was a former Varian employee, and I say former because he got fired. He used to piss people off, to put it in frank terms, total jerk. People did not have a lot of good things to say about him, except the fact that he was a very competent engineer. At the time this case was referred to me, he had already left Varian, having been fired. He was in the process of suing Varian for wrongful termination, and he had been working at another company called, I don't remember the name, but it was a radiological group, a group of doctors who used the machines, basically a customer of Varian who had the uh, one or more of these Varian machines installed in the hospital and would treat people for cancer. And he, he was their engineering manager, but he had just been fired from that job. So that's where we were at the time. That's who David Brian Kerr was. Sounds like a really nice guy. Yeah, I know. So the first thing I had to do, um, there's a lot of preliminary stuff you have to do in any case, uh, but in particular in a trade secret theft case. I'd had some experience in this type of case already. As I'd mentioned, I already had that one case with, uh, with Varian, but I'd had several others before that too. Uh, you've worked white-collar crime, am I correct? Uh, Jerry, wasn't that what, what you did? Yep, that's what I did. The uh, The majority of my career was all white-collar crime, but nothing, nothing like uh, trade secrets. Okay, well, one of the things that, that you already know is that it's important is to establish the amount of loss. Uh, you have to go to a United States attorney and interest the uh, the AUSA to in the case it has to be big enough um did, did you have prosecutive guidelines on white collar cases yeah oh absolutely not only the a threshold in order to actually you know charge a case but then of course you have the threshold that will affect the sentencing guidelines exactly 
So, so that was one of the first things, probably the first thing I asked was, you know, how much dollar loss has, they been, has there been here? And that was a tricky question. And it often is in, in these trade secret theft cases, because often the person has stolen the thing and it may be very valuable, but the company has, has not lost any money yet. At least it's not provable that their business has been hurt, or at least not yet. It's all a potential, I guess, potential loss. Right. Yeah, they can talk about how much they spent to develop a program or a product or a customer list. They can talk about all that kind of stuff, but it's not very easy to pin down losses. So we had to address that in a number of ways. That involved me going out and doing a lot of interviews and with the company and so forth, looking at the materials. Now, let's get back to how it got reported to me. The lawyer at Varian the reason she became aware of this theft was because when Kern was fired from his job with the radiology group, the doctors discovered in his workspace a bunch of material that appeared to be Varian material. It was marked as proprietary and, and so forth. So they called up Varian and said, hey, we're sorry, guys. Uh, we have a bunch of your stuff. We didn't authorize this, but one of our employees that we have now fired has a bunch of your stuff, and we're going to send it back to you. Well, actually, I should take that back because they didn't immediately send it back. They basically just warned Varian that they had it. And they wanted to know if it was proprietary. And there was a little game going on there between the radiology group and Varian, where the radiology group basically wanted Varian to give them a break on all the servicing fees and charges and, and so forth before they would send back the stuff. They basically were trying to get a discount by holding on to stolen property is what they were doing. And so they're playing this, this game. And then at the same time, of course, we had this lawsuit going on where uh, David Kern was suing Varian for wrongful termination. There were all kinds of issues with that. And I ended up switching contacts with, from a lawyer at Varian who called me originally to deal with their outside counsel, who was the, the defense counsel on that wrongful termination suit, Lynn, Lynn Harmley. And she's a, a well-known uh, employment law attorney here in the Valley. She's with a firm called Oric. that's a, a major firm on the West Coast, and uh, maybe across the country. I don't know. She's very good at her job. And so when they got these documents from the radiology group, she went ahead and instituted a countersuit, a counterclaim against Kern for theft and fraud and various torts. I don't know exactly. A breach of contract, I think, was one of the causes of action. So she went from defense to offense in that case. And uh, just the way the rules of court are, it's all the same case. You, you can have a plaintiff suing a defendant and the defendant countersues, and it's all heard by the same judge, all the facts for the same judge or jury. Now, that raised a bunch of other issues for me. Since I had worked a lot of these cases already, I knew that there were two main tacks that defense lawyers take in a trade secret theft case. The first one, uh, and this is true in a lot of white collar cases, not just trade secret theft, the defense likes to argue, well, this is just a business dispute. You've got two entities, two companies arguing about what the license agreement is or who owns what and what rights. Let it work out in the civil courts. It's unfair to have the U.S. government and the FBI come putting their thumb on the scales here. 
stay out of it. That can work in some cases, I think, civil side. So that's their first tack. The other thing in trade secret theft cases is the thing that's unique, and that is that in order to qualify under the definition of a trade secret, something has to be reasonably protected. People often get confused about, for example, patent law. When I'd start to talk about this case or other trade secret theft cases, they say, so this person was violating their patents. And I always have to explain that no, patents are different from trade secrets. When a company has some technology that's very valuable and they don't want others to use, they basically have to make a choice between going two different ways. One way is the patent law. They can file a patent application, patent is granted. They then have all the tools of patent law. Patent infringement is definitely something that's compensable and there's fines for it and triple damages or something under certain circumstances. I don't know all the details. But the other route is to go trade secret route. Say with a patent, you actually have to make it public. That's the point. You file the application, you describe your technology, your invention, your procedure, your process that you're patenting. So anybody knows what it is and knows how to duplicate it. Could we throw in copyright also in there? That it is, you know, you own it, and it's, but it's out in public, and you have the right not to have somebody else claim it as theirs. Is it, is it similar to? Yes, although I don't want to say it's the same. I think with copyright, for example, an author such as Jerry Williams, I think you own the rights to your thing, whether you have made it public or not. I think the author automatically owns the rights of anything he or she writes. I agree. Mm-hmm. So it is very much like that, though. So yeah, basically, you, you go the open route by patenting, or you go the secret route by simply keeping it secret. There's like the recipe to Coke. They haven't patented that. They don't tell anybody what it is. So that's a trade secret. And there are things like customer lists that you can't be can't be patented. It's just something you learn in the course of business, doing business, and you build up a customer list over years. You don't want anybody else to know who your customers are and maybe a similar list of all your vendors. And uh, nobody can compete with you if they don't have that information. That would be a trade secret that is not patentable. All right. But you have to prove that you've protected it in some way. Right. If you distribute it freely uh, and so forth, if you allow your employees to take it and, and start up a related business and you don't sue them, for example, that would be an example of uh, something that might kill your right to ever protect that in the future. It may not be a public domain, but you can't treat it as a trade secret anymore. So at the beginning of the case, first I had to find out what the amount of uh, loss was. And I was convinced that they were going to be able to make a case for something that's worth millions of dollars, potentially although they hadn't suffered any exact loss yet. But that was an issue I was going was a little bit worried about. The second thing was I needed to find out all about this kind of data and how it was protected. That's how the investigation started. I went over to Varian and interviewed a bunch of people. Typical things were what sort of physical security is given to this stuff. So I looked at it. Most of the stuff that they showed me was in paper form. Kern actually had several different things. It wasn't just the 
encrypted stuff. For example, he had some manuals that he had apparently kept from when he was an employee. I think what happened was when he would get a new manual of procedures or whatever it was, instead of turning in the old one or shredding it, he would take it home and keep it. So there, um, there's potential weakness in terms of protecting the trade secret. But then I ask, well, does somebody have a non-disclosure agreement? And the answer is yes. Uh, very unrequired and the employees to sign a non-disclosure agreement. They had to turn in all their materials when they left their employment. Uh, the materials were marked as very proprietary, that sort of thing. And one of the interesting things was that there's a particular manual that had a lot of valuable stuff. I think it may have had some of the same kinds of material that was on the encrypted material. There were these binders in paper form that had a lot of tech information. And it was printed um, with black print on dark red paper. There was a reason for that. It's rather hard to read. So uh, you'd wonder why, why print something up that's so hard to read. Well, it's because it's hard to Xerox. An employee couldn't just take it down to the local Kinko's and copy it all. It just comes out as a black sheet. So that's a very clever way, I thought, of showing that you're protecting something. So you not only have the markings of property variant, do not copy, it's proprietary, but you also have this, this red paper that shows that they're serious about trying to keep you from copying it. So we went over those kinds of things. We wanted to know if they licensed these things to their, to their customers, for example. And they did have a licensing agreement with their clients, and in particular with this company, this radiological group where Kern worked. Kern himself was the one, I believe, who had signed the agreement or negotiated the, the license. So that became a problem. You can't prosecute somebody for stealing something that he has a license to have access to. So we had to start asking questions about what was the extent of the license. And this was complicated by the fact that the radiology group was at that time playing this game that I told you about, where they are trying to argue that this was stuff that they were allowed to have. And if, if not, then they should at least be given some kind of discount for returning it. So does that mean that at this point of the case, you know that they may have things that are protected, but you really have no idea exactly what they have? What I don't know is whether or not the stuff that they had met the definitions and terms in the licensing agreement. So that was potentially uh, a weakness in the case too. Let me ask another question. At this point of the case, have you any idea how David Kern got this stuff. Some of it was manuals that he should have turned in when he left. You know, these right. are things that they gave him for his use as an employee at Variant before he was fired that he should have returned back. Are you aware at this point if there are any additional materials that he may have gotten a hold of that he should not have had at any point of his employment before or after he was fired? Yes, that's the answer to that. And that's where the encrypted stuff comes in. Oh, Although it, I forgot about the encrypted stuff. Okay. Yes. So um, some of the stuff, uh, although it was in paper form, it was shown to me in paper form, I was informed by people at Varian that this was printouts from 
various files that existed on the computers of those service techs I told you about who go out, the, the same job that David Kern used to have at Varian years earlier, uh, when he would go out and install things and adjust and calibrate these machines. That was before he pissed everybody off. <laughs> right, exactly. But the current version of it, everything was now on laptops. These were current files. This was not stuff that he would ever have had access to back when he was there. It was the same job, but the, the technicians who did this job now had updated materials and, and new programs and, and so forth. So it only existed on a current computer belonging to Varian. And they didn't know, and it somehow had been printed out from that computer, which it shouldn't have been able to, to even happen. And some of it, not all of it, some of it was just regular files, but uh, some of it was these encrypted files, in particular, a program called the Tech Tips. They didn't understand, one, how he got access to these files. Did he hack into a computer somewhere, um, whatever it was? And then secondly, how did he decrypt the Tech Tip? So I knew that he had something from, from the computer, but we didn't know how he got it. And we didn't know how he managed to read it and print it out. It was designed so that, so that it couldn't be read or printed out by somebody without a key. We assumed it happened. It came off of a, a laptop computer. And, pr and presumably, the laptop computer of the technician who serviced that particular client. There was a man, I used the name Zambetti. It's a fake name, but to protect his privacy. But basically, Zambetti went out to the radiology place and accidentally left his laptop computer at the hospital uh, where he was adjusting the, the radiation device. He left and realized it and called back to the radiology place, talked to one of the engineers, one of the people who worked for David Kern, and said, hey, I left my laptop at the hospital by the machine. Can you grab it and secure it? And I'll come back tomorrow and pick it up. So the engineer agreed to do that. And he did, in fact, pick it up. But he didn't leave it there at the hospital. He took it back over to the uh, doctor's offices. Radiological group had separate facilities and put it in their engineering room. That much we were able to figure out, that he must have somehow accessed the computer during that time. Because that's these were files that were exactly consistent with what would have been on that computer. But we didn't know how he could have read the stuff. You know, one of the things I had to do was interview this engineer. We'll call him Zambetti. He insisted that he was there overnight. David Kern wasn't even there. He came the next morning. And he described what to him seemed very odd. One of the people in the engineering group stalled him. I think, I think David Kern himself stalled the engineer, Zambetti, at the hospital. The engineer had returned to the hospital to pick up his laptop because that's where he had left it. And that's where the radiology machine was. But the laptop itself was over in the office. And so Kern started talking with Zambetti and stalled because he had started copying all the files from the laptop onto his own computer. And we didn't know that this had happened at the time, but I'm just explaining uh, how we figured out later that, that it had taken place. 
the tech tips was the most valuable thing that was encrypted. I don't know in terms of volume and percentages how much was encrypted. I think most of it was not. Most of it was in plain text, if you will, um, and could be read like a word processing document. For example, there were customer lists, and I don't believe those were encrypted, although they may qualify as trade secret. I think they were marked as uh, trade secret, as proprietary. But the technical information on how to service these machines was encrypted. So the printouts that uh, that were shown to me at Varian, it was a variety of stuff. There was the things that came from the manuals that he had kept with him. There was stuff that came from these plain text files that I just mentioned, whether it was customer lists or other things. I don't, I don't recall exactly. And then there was... The tech tips stuff it fell in different categories, and it wasn't clear exactly how he obtained it at that time. I think that was kind of the, the preliminary step. There was lots of interviewing of this fellow Zambetti. There was interviewing of the people who make the machines. I had to learn about the machines themselves, what kind of information was on these tech tips, and what was particularly valuable about them. One of the things I learned was that apparently there are companies that compete with Varian for the servicing of these machines. It's mostly uh, people who are former Varian employees, people like David Kern, who for one reason or another left employment with Varian, but they know how to calibrate and adjust these machines. One of the things I learned in Silicon Valley is that all these companies who make these machines, there's a profit on the machine when they sell it, of course, but really... They make most of their money providing parts and service afterward. Oh, kind of like uh, car dealerships. Like car dealerships or like um, Polaroid cameras. You know, you can buy a Polaroid camera for less than it costs to make it. But, you know, only Polaroid could make that film. And uh, it was a very expensive film. It's a different business model. But, yeah, it's also much like car, car dealerships, too. The point being that there's a high markup for the service and for the parts. So if um, so, there's just a natural opportunity for anybody who knows how to do this to charge a little bit less than Varian does. And as long as they're capable of doing it, they can still charge a pretty good amount, make a good living at it, have be their own boss, have their own business. That's probably what David Kern wanted this for. That was one of the questions that I asked Varian was, uh, so, so why does he want this? What's he going to do with it? And so they explained that to me, that if he ever wants to, he can get hired on by one of these other firms that, that competes with Varian for this particular service. Another thing is that um, as long as he knows how to do this, even there at uh, the radiology group where he was working, there's stuff he could do internally at no additional cost to the company that they were paying Varian to come out and do. So it was valuable for either purpose. They didn't know exactly why he had stolen. He was the kind of person, we learned later, that he was the kind of person who just liked to get his hands on stuff that he shouldn't get his hands on. In fact, that's how he got fired or why he got fired from the radiology group. And that we did learn very quickly. That's, that was already known to me when, they, when the lawyer called me up. He'd been fired because he kept digging around in the network of the radiology group. He would tell the other support employees, how much the doctors were making. The doctors were making like millions and the employees were making 100,000. And so there was this, or not even that, 50,000 or something. And so 
uh, there was this resentment that he was stirring up among the, the support staff. He was able to circumvent the uh, protections and the privacy rules on all the salary files and everything else. Basically, you know, every time you, you talk about him, uh, just not a very nice guy. He just liked, no. to, liked to stir up stuff. Yeah, and he had a drinking problem, too, is what I understand. He was competent at work. He, he could do the job, technically. After work, for example, he'd go out with some of the employees, maybe a, um, a sports bar to watch local sports team or something. And he'd just get drunk and, and be a jerk, you know, swear about how bad the players were or the other, or his company or whatever it was. He just would make a, an ass of himself. That was actually a bit of a problem for the case because if he wasn't trying to make money from it and he wasn't hurting Varian, then the loss figures aren't going to be big. Assistant U.S. attorney isn't going to be very interested in the case. So we're still in the preliminary stages. So I should probably tell you one other major problem at this point, and that is the fact that the radiology group was over in the Sacramento area, and um, that's a different division in the San Francisco division. So. The actual theft didn't take place in the division where I was working. I knew this was going to be a problem. Um, I don't know if you've ever worked, uh, say you were in Philadelphia, so you probably worked closely in New Jersey. I, I don't know how the lines are drawn there. Yeah, so actually it, it, it happens a lot because the Philadelphia division covers three counties in New Jersey, Salem, Gloucester, and Camden County. And so sometimes things happen in Jersey that are Philadelphia cases, and sometimes they ha they happen and they're Newark cases just by somebody you know crossing the street. So yeah, I, I do understand what you're what you're talking about. All right. So at this point, after I'd convinced myself that there was a good dollar loss, the material was really a trade secret. Reasonable measures had been taken to protect it. That was defensible. And I knew the U.S. Attorney's Office was champing at the bit to get a trade secret theft case. Um, at that point, all these cases had to be reviewed back at Maine Justice in Washington um, because it was a new statute and they wanted to not have some bad case come out there that was going to set a bad, bad precedent. They wanted to make sure all the elements were there and that it was the kind of case that the statute was made for and so on. And um, there was pressure uh, here in San Francisco that, hey, you're Silicon Valley, you're protecting the nation's jewels, uh, technological jewels. Why don't you have any of these cases? Isn't anybody stealing anything out there? So they were ready for the case. But I've already pointed out the various problems. So I went to the U.S. Attorney's Office and laid it all out for them. And there was an attorney there who was very enthused about the case, wanted to go forward with it. but. The biggest stumbling block, as far as they were concerned, was the theft itself took place in Sacramento. And that's a different judicial district, a different FBI division. So they couldn't really take the case, but they thought it was a good case. So they ended up getting in touch with the U.S. Attorney's Office in Sacramento. And after some discussions, it was agreed that I would continue being the case agent but it would be prosecuted by an attorney there, an assistant United States attorney in Sacramento. Well, that's something of a logistical problem, just in terms of the distance. And then, of course, it's somebody I'd never worked with and who'd never worked with me. 
but that often happens. Uh, so, and what is the distance between San Jose and and uh, Sacramento? It's about a hundred miles, one hundred twenty miles, something like that. Okay, and so as you're working on uh, prosecution with the U.S. attorney, sometimes you're meeting every day and are several times a week, and I could see, you know, that could be, you know, a, a logistical. Um, not not necessarily a nightmare, but certainly inconvenience. Right, uh, but but of course, I'd been working in RAs but before, and I understood. And there are plenty of resident agents who get cases prosecuted, and they can be hundreds of miles. I mean, just look at the big divisions like Mon- uh, Salt Lake, where you have Montana and Idaho, and uh, all these other places, uh, hundreds of miles away from headquarter city. And they managed to do a lot of that on the phone. And I was sure that I was going to be able to do a lot on the phone. So um, it was more the case that um, I just wasn't real comfortable with attorneys that I didn't know. In the local San Jose office or the U.S. Attorney's Office, I knew the attorneys. I knew who was good and who wasn't. And I knew that the attorney there who was enthused about the case would do a good job because I was familiar with him, his work. It was a pig in the poke in Sacramento. I didn't know. And, and it turned out to be a major issue, in fact, later. But they hooked me up with an attorney in Sacramento Division. And I drove up there and I went ahead and laid out the case for him. He was very enthused. He was a, a young guy. He hadn't been in the U.S. Attorney's Office all that long, but he was from a top law school and he'd been in the U.S. Attorney's Office for, for a while, for maybe a couple of years. He Definitely spoke like he knew he knew the area of law. He knew what the problems were, how the defense attorneys worked, and what the typical defenses and defenses were to these cases. So that he was already aware of the fact that uh, I had to be able to prove that these were reasonably protected, for example. So I was looking forward to the case, and he went ahead and agreed to promote it. So he needed to provide a write-up for the Department of Justice, the main justice. There's a section back there that dealt with this. I had to help them prepare. They had to do an equivalent of a prosecutive report there in the U.S. Attorney's Office to go back to justice. It was like an extra step for your listeners. Typically, when a case is presented to the U.S. Attorney's Office um, in its essentially final stage, the agent will prepare a prosecutor report with a bunch of, with a summary at the beginning and a bunch of 302s and inserts and other uh, documents, uh, Xeroxes of physical evidence and all that kind of thing for the attorney. And the attorney, the attorney would take it and use that to prepare the legal documents for fi- filing for indictments or complaints and so forth. That's the normal process. And we did that in this case, but there was this additional step I'm talking about where here the assistant United States attorney had to prepare a similar report dealing with case law and the history of the statute and all that kind of thing that's over and beyond the normal prosecutive report that an agent would do and send that back to Maine Justice to get approval for the case. So uh, he did that. And it was about back and forth on the phone with Maine Justice, I know, and he'd call me up and ask me questions, and I'd have to prepare stuff for him. But he got the approval. He wasn't ready to file at that point. I still had to do the investigation, figure out how it happened. 
and prove that there was an actual theft. We, we still had to deal with that issue of, was it within the license? How do we prove this isn't just a business dispute over licensing? I do want to say that probably, to me, was one of the fascinating things about working white collar. But, you know, when you're working, a, you know, a straight out criminal case involving drugs or violence or organized crime, you know that the crime occurred. That's not the question. You're just trying to figure out who is responsible for the crime. But in so many cases, like the one that you're describing in white collar crime cases, you're spending a lot of time figuring out if what you're looking at is even a crime. Exactly. That's, that's well put. So, um, so I should at this point tell you how, uh, how I went ahead uh, to prove that this was a theft. Uh, this was the key. I went out to interview people out of the radiological group. It's the next logical step. Once you figure out that the basics uh, with the U.S. attorney are covered and that they're interested in the case, uh, I went ahead and drove out to Sacramento. And again, so that's part of the pro- logistical problems is I'm driving hundreds of miles just to do interviews, but that's no big deal. And those type of interviews are not the kind that you would even attempt to do over the phone because you're trying to elicit information and cooperation, which I imagine in person was kind of easy to do because we've already established that David Kern was kind of a jerk. So I can't believe that people would not be willing to to dime him out very easily. Well, it's interesting you say that because it wasn't that simple. Yes, his co-workers, for the most part, were more than happy to complain about him and dime him out, as you put it. But um, keep in mind the, the brass there they were well aware that they could be liable themselves. David Kern looked a lot like their agent. Um, he was the one who negotiated these things. And it, there was a, an argument. Variant might very well have sued them on the grounds that this stuff was lying all around the engineering area for months. So it wasn't a secret. In fact, what I learned in the interviews was that Kern was having his secretary scan a lot of this stuff uh, using optical character recognition. And the stuff on the red paper I talked about, she couldn't Xerox that well. So she was having to read the some of this uh, proprietary stuff that was black print on dark red paper and, and just retype it by hand on, on her computer. And it was she, she was complaining about how uh, how difficult that was. Okay, so I can understand why they're a little hesitant because of that liability issue. Right, both civil and possibly even criminal, if it was seen that they were they aided and abetted what he was doing, and what he was doing was a crime. Looking at what was going on there, it was exactly like what I had expected and what, what you were expecting was, hey, this guy was a jerk, we know that, everybody's going to want to dime him out. And my first couple of interviews uh, were like that. The office manager, he wasn't even a doctor, uh, but he was kind of the, the boss. Um, the partnership was owned solely by these radiologists, these doctors, but I never talked to them. Really, the office manager uh, was the one who represented the doctor's interests, and he was kind of cagey and not really cooperating that much. He was trying to argue to me that, well, this stuff, really, it's we think it might be in the license agreement and it should have been licensed anyway, even if it wasn't, maybe the language should have been more inclusive, blah, blah, blah. So a little skittish, but I'll tell you what the, what the key was. And, and that was when I interviewed 
another guy, and I'll call him Griffith. I wrote an article about this. It was published in the, an academic journal called Cryptologia. And that's the name I use for him there. He was another worker in the engineering department. He worked under David, David Kern. David Kern was his boss. When he showed up for the interview, I was expecting the same kind of thing, enthusiastic interview where, where the guy was going to say, yeah, he's a jerk. Uh, he was doing this stuff. What an idiot. Well, that's not what happened. He showed up with a lawyer and the lawyer wanted to do all the talking. Well, I, I don't know about you, Jerry, but when a guy shows up with a lawyer for what was supposed to be just friendly interview about somebody else, now that tells you something's going on there. That's what you call a clue. Yeah, a clue. So I knew right off, he knows something he doesn't want to tell. You know, I don't know exactly what it is, but he at least knew what Kern was doing. But it also raised the possibility that you know, there was a co-conspirator and we have somebody who's potentially criminally liable. This lawyer was a criminal defense attorney. We had to play a little cat and mouse game there. And I pretty much just came out and confronted him with the fact that, hey, I know that you're doing all the talking because Mr. Griffith here has something he wants to tell, but he's afraid he can get in trouble for doing it. Let's just put all our cards on the table. This is going to be the first case under trade secret theft in California. And it's going to be a big case. We want it to be a clean case. So we're going to need a cooperating witness. If your guy didn't come up with this scheme, we know that he never worked for Varian. We know that your client, Griffith, isn't the one who, who brought these red pages over from his prior employment. We know that he's not the one who talked for a long time to stall Zambetti when he came back to pick up his laptop. So I don't think he's the instigator of this. Time will tell. But if he's not, I think I can get a deal for him. I don't have the authority to grant immunity, but I'm pretty sure I can get it if, if he's got the smoking gun for me. So I just laid it out like that. And the attorney talked with him a little bit. And we agreed that it was time to talk to the U.S. attorney and strike an agreement. And then he had a story to tell. And it was a very good story that he had to tell. He laid out how it all took place. A bit of a timeline. I hope you can follow all this. Let's go back to the time when the variant engineer Zambetti was out there um, servicing the machine and he left his laptop at the hospital. Okay, well, what happened was this guy Griffith had picked up the laptop, taken it back to the engineering office, according to Griffith. When David Kern saw it there, he immediately said, "What? what is this thing? And Griffith explained that Zambetti had left his laptop and was going to come back the next day to pick it up. So Kern said, let's fire this thing up, see what's on it. Of course, Griffith said, well, no, we can't do that. It's not ours. And that might be illegal. To Kern just poo-pooed him and hooked it up to his computer. He was, he was very good with networking. He had all the right cables and software and everything else. And just copied it hard drive to hard drive. Copied all the files off of the laptop. Then he unplugged it. And apparently, this copying was going on at the same time that Zambetti sh showed up to pick it up. It was the next morning, in other words. It wasn't um, the same evening when um, Griffith had secured the laptop. So, so here we are the morning after. Kern realizes he's got this treasure trove of stuff, and he's starting to copy it. And Zambetti shows up and says, and he shows up at the hospital, not at the engineering office. He says, where's my laptop? So Kern 
runs over to the hospital and meets somebody there at the hospital and stalls him for an hour, telling somebody that, you know, not to unplug the thing until it's finished copying the entire contents of the hard drive. So that, that took place. Wow, so that's why they're stalling him. That's why they're stalling. So once that happens, Griffith brings the laptop over to the hospital, hands it over to Zambetti. Zambetti goes back to Varian, or whatever other calls that he had that day. And Kern goes back to his office and starts to read and see what he had had to see. And as I said, a lot of the files were not encrypted. There's a bunch of good stuff on there, customer lists, and some of it was trade secrets, some of it wasn't. But he knew what it all was because he had had that same job in the past. He was several years out of date with it, but he, he knew what it all was. But then the tech tips, that's what he really wanted to see. That's kind of with the crown jewels. And that was the encrypted part. So he tried to open that up and it wouldn't open up. The program just shut down because it didn't have the, um, the key. This confused him at first, but he figured out what the problem was. Again, because he was an insider at Varian, he knew how Varian protected things with their encryption. And he knew that particular program for the laptop used was called a dongle, a D-O-N-G-L-E. And a dongle is a device that plugs into a computer. And in this case, it contained the cryptographic key and maybe some additional software. I don't know exactly how to describe the contents of the dongle, but the bottom line is that had to be plugged into a port on the back of the laptop in order for the program to work and decrypt all the information. So he knew that that was the case, but the problem was he didn't have the dongle. So that's where I would have been really confused if this guy Griffith hadn't told me exactly how they overcame this problem. David Kern could not read the tech tips at that time. So all he'd started doing was printing out all this other stuff and having his secretary scan it. He went out and bought a optical character recognition thing. He, he bought a sheet feed attachment to their Xerox machine so that he could start printing out the stuff that was not encrypted. Handed that to his secretary. He wanted to have it retyped. He didn't want to just Xerox it because it had all the markings. It was very improprietary and all that kind of thing. So we'll get into that later. Let's focus on the tech tips because that was really the crown jewel that made the case. What happened was about a week later, the same technician, Zambetti, came out to the radiology group to do some more work. He came out with the same laptop and same bag. So what David Kern decided to do, he instructed Griffith to assist him with this. And that was Kern would distract Zambetti, the technician, with some technical questions and so on. So he took up his time. He took him off to the side while the technician was, was working. And he had Griffith take the bag, rifle through it, pull the dongle out, and then once he had it to signal Kern that he had it, he came and handed it to Kern. And Kern went over to the engineering office. Griffith was totally unaware of this. His back was turned so that all this was taking place behind his back. And then when uh, Griffith handed him the dongle, he took it over to the engineering office, plugged it into his computer. While the technician, Zambetti, continued to work at the hospital, he plugged it into the computer, the, I believe it was the parallel port, started the tech tips program, and sure enough, it came up in the clear. So he was elated. 
he tried to print the stuff out, but there were still other protections. And this was good from the prosecutor's standpoint. He still couldn't access the stuff the way he wanted. He tried to do a file copy so he could save the stuff in the clear, and that had been disabled. There wasn't any file save option on the menu. He tried to do a print screen, but when he hit the print screen key, it closed the program and nothing printed out. So he had to restart the program with the dongle and think about how to deal with this. He couldn't really take advantage of it. He could read what was on the screen, but if he ever turned off his computer or tried to print it out, he couldn't change to another program too. Back in those days, this was under Windows 3.1. This program was um, originally written. So, you know, it's an old, old program. I think it was Alt-Tab is what you would use when you want to switch from one program to another. He tried doing that so he could uh, start up a word processor. and Maybe he could cut and paste text into the word processor. When he hit Alt-Tab, that also closed the program. So these were additional protections that had been written into the program and helped to prove that it was reasonably protected, by the way. So what to do? He still couldn't really access the stuff. What he next did is he unplugged the dongle and wanted to see if the program would close down. But it didn't. He could still read what was on the screen and he could still scroll through the whole the entire content. He could go to different pages and, and so forth. And it was all in the clear. So he went to the other two, two computers because during that interim week, he had copied all the material that had been on the laptop onto two other computers. He had two employees who worked for him. They each had a computer. Copied onto their two computers the same content. And he was having them print out a lot of the stuff too. So he wouldn't have to keep hitting print screens and so forth. So when he went to those other computers and plugged in the dongle, he discovered that the program would open the tech tips there too. And so he had the program open on three different computers at the same time, all in the clear using the dongle. And this all took place within just half an hour or so. So then he ran back over to the hospital, covertly handed the uh, dongle back over to Griffith, distracted Zambetti, the varying guy, once again, and had Griffith replace the dongle in the guy's bag, the laptop bag. So as Griffin is telling you all of this, first of all, I, I guess you can immediately understand why company was concerned about their own liability. But I guess you're also saying, you know, like jackpot, smoking gun. It's definitely a theft of trade secrets. Well, that's the key. As I said, it's one of the hardest things to prove in these cases. But there's something that the term lawyers use for that called asportation. Basically, the physical taking and carrying away of something. That's an element for any larceny that is normal. And it's always been a problem, other types of high-tech crime. And a lot of what's stolen is software. You know, uh, uh, and a lot of it's just hacked. In fact, it's transported. Um, somebody hacks from uh, point A to point B, and it may even be across a state line. We're trying to prove interstate transportation stolen property, for example, which is one of the statutes, an FBI statute that we had to use in earlier cases, became a real problem because our bits and bytes property, you're transporting something interstate, and there's arguments about that. Lawyers have, I think in some cases, successfully argued that there's, there's been no transportation of property. It's just energy. Electrons are not property. So um, here we had a physical device that was taken. And like you say, uh, it was a smoking gun. 
So once I had that, the U.S. attorney was ready to file. And people back at Justice said, yes, this is the kind of case that uh, the statute was designed for. So we're all ready to go. I was looking forward to uh, going forward with an indictment. But just about this point, the attorney I was working with in Sacramento quit and took a job with a law firm. I don't know if this ever happened to you, Jerry, but this <laughs> happened a lot in uh, uh, San Jose. Yeah, I can imagine that private practice or a, a private company, uh, those attorneys make a lot more than they do in the U.S. Attorney's Office. A lot of these people, especially the younger ones from the top schools, they may even be on loan. A typical company would be like this Oric, although I don't think that's where this, this attorney didn't go to that particular firm. But I told you about Lynn Hermley, the attorney handling the wrongful termination lawsuit that Kern was handling. That's one of the big, big firms. And they and other big Silicon Valley firms will hire somebody out of Harvard or Yale or someplace like that, and then loan them to the U.S. Attorney's Office for two years, guarantee that they can have a job when they come back. And they get their their two years of trial experience. Basically, they're trained at uh, government expense, and then they come back, and their, their spot is assured. I guess this is very similar to clerking for a very prominent judge for a few years before you go out. Exactly. Exactly right. So that's what happened with this guy. And I don't really blame him, but it was a terrible turn for the case because it was assigned to another attorney. One of these guys had been around his entire career. He specialized in only one thing, which was some kind of farm loan fraud thing. I don't even know exactly how it worked, but it was all had to do with farms and some government agency guaranteeing loans and so forth. He had no interest in the case. And I don't usually say this, but I will say he's a total idiot. Just to give you one example, there was a document that he needed, and it was something I had sent weeks earlier. And unlike other AUSAs, he never called to tell me he had it. He never discussed it on the phone. He had insisted that I get it to him. I don't remember if it was a 302 or something else, a piece of physical evidence. But anyway, I had sent it to him. Well, he called me up one day and said, I have to file this thing tomorrow in court. No, I don't have this document. You were supposed to send that to me weeks ago. And I said, I did send it to you. He said, no, you didn't. So I even had my secretary go, go through the file and she files everything. And it's not there. I said, well, I can fax it to you. I think it was only one page. He said, no, it can't be a fax. It has to be a clean copy. So well, you got to get it here. So I had to go to the file, print out a clean copy from my computer, hop in my car, drove all the way to Sacramento. When I met him, he was downstairs smoking a cigarette and drinking a Pepsi. He was addicted to both. So I went up to his office, opened up his file drawer and looked in. And there was the thing that I had sent him right there. Very first sheet of paper in the file. Oh, my God. I have to say, because I know that there's lots of agents who listen to this podcast, and I'm sure every one of them, including me, are remembering times like this. I actually have a whole chapter in my new book just about the relationship between an FBI agent and an assistant United States attorney. And there's so many that are just great. But I have to agree with you. There's always a few that you're constantly asking them, you know, what's going on with the case? And you're, you're hoping to get the grand jury going? Are the indictment prepared? Are the information? And it just never happened. Well, despite that, bottom line was we finally ended up getting the indictment written, got him indicted, and it didn't take long for him to end up reaching a plea deal with the prosecution. 
and we got a conviction. And he got sentenced to, I think it was a year and a day, if I remember correctly. It was a felony conviction. There were still interesting things going on, though, because the civil suit was still going on. I told you that uh, Lynn Harmley, the civil attorney, the outside counsel for Varian, had filed a counterclaim against him. Kind of an interesting twist on that. She won that suit, got a $3.5 million judgment against him for combination of theft and fraud and contract violation. So there's your dollar value. If anybody ever wanted to dispute the value of the case, a judge awarded a $3.5 million judgment for what he did. Maybe not all of that's attributable just to the trade secret theft, but I would say we met the prosecutive guidelines. One of the funny stories I want to share with you, and that is that um, during the course of the discovery on that civil suit, I talked a lot with Lynn Hermley. And as I told you, one of the arguments that we had to be careful about was the one that uh, the criminal defense attorneys like to use is that the, the FBI is helping a plaintiff in a civil suit. It's putting its thumb on the scale. And that's unfair and should not be allowed. And so we had to kind of keep our distance. But at the same time, she was acquiring these documents through discovery against the radiology groups. And she was getting these different, different documents. And she was interviewing the different people, including David Kern. She did a deposition for David Kern. And it went on for, for several days. Once he got indicted, his attorney wouldn't let him testify in the, uh, in the civil discovery anymore, in the deposition, for obvious reasons. But the funny thing was, when it came time to answer the question, the attorney said, my client is taking the First Amendment, not the Fifth Amendment, the First Amendment. What kind of an attorney did he hire? <laughs> yeah, apparently he, he had a drinking problem, too. I think he was a drinking buddy of Kern. And Lynn told me later that she had intentionally scheduled the deposition for the afternoon because she knew that attorney always had a liquid lunch and she wanted him to be off his game. Strategy. Yeah, I know. I would never have thought of that. I have to say that in my career, there were many times where there was the criminal investigation going on at the same time as the civil investigation, and the attorneys for the civil case want us to file our charges as soon as possible because that could only help their case. But we made sure that in all of our cases that the two were never mixed. You know, this has nothing to do with your civil case, and we're going to go on our own time frame, and you just need to do what you need to do, and don't you worry about what we're doing over here on the criminal side. Exactly. And that's what we did. But at the same time, she was getting information that was evidence. It was relevant evidence. And the victim of a crime is allowed to cooperate with law enforcement. I have to say this. I think one of the, and I, and I talk about all the time, you know, on, on the podcast about how, how much I enjoyed working white collar crime because I was always fascinated about the different ways that people would try to steal other people's money. But the other thing about working this type of crime is that you get to learn so much things that you'll probably never use. You know, like I know how to make cardboard boxes and I'll never use that in real life. I, I know how to separate scrap metal in China, you know, how, how that system works. I'll never be able to use that. But I had cases that involved these technologies 
And so I had to learn it. And in this particular case, as you mentioned, you had to learn about radiology devices. So I do want to remind everyone that you, like me, you know, like to write crime fiction and that many of the books that you've written are inspired by some of the actual cases that you've worked. So I'm wondering if this particular case, if you have a book that talks about encryption and and cryptology. Yes, as a matter of fact, uh, I do. One of my novels is called Fatal Dose, and it's very strongly modeled around this case. Although, of course, it has to be a murder mystery, so you've got people zapped to death here. It's uh, got a little bit of violence in there, but essentially this case spiced up a bit. Yeah, we, we all know about creative license and creative compromises to make the story something that holds the reader's interest. I will put a link to that book in this episode's show notes so that people can enjoy a fictionalized version of this true crime case. Thank you. One last thing I want to do, because I don't think that we did it in episode 94 when I spoke with you before, and I wanted to get an understanding of why you joined the FBI. I was a tax specialist, if you will. I I was the research assistant to a tax professor. I also worked for an accountant doing tax returns when I was at Berkeley there in law school, and I always expected to go into tax law. And in fact, when I was finishing up my third year, I was applying to various law firms, you know, trying to get a job as a tax lawyer. Well, I was interviewing with a bunch of firms, and you've probably heard stories elsewhere of lawyers who apply to hundreds of firms and end up uh, wallpapering their rooms with all the rejection letters. And so I wasn't having any luck, but I went to this one firm. It was one of the top firms in Silicon Valley and got an interview with uh, one of the top name partners. And he was real interested in me and thought that I might have a possibility. But he asked me what other opportunities I had. Well, I mentioned to him that I had an uncle, an FBI agent, was just retiring about the time that I was applying for jobs. And my uncle had told me that he could get me a job in the FBI. He, he was the deputy assistant director. So he was very high up. And even though he had just retired, he knew everybody at the top. So he asked me more about the FBI job. And I said, well, I hadn't really thought about that. I said, it might be fun, but I'm good at tax. And that's probably what I should be doing. Palo Alto borders on the bay, on the San Francisco Bay. So he took me over to the window. He said, see the yacht harbor out there? And so uh, I looked out the window and said, yes. He said, well, I've got a yacht out there. I said, oh, that's great. How often do you go sailing? He said, I haven't been sailing in two years. If I were you, I'd take that FBI job. That was the moment, Jerry. So he's talking about quality of life and purpose. Exactly. I hadn't really thought about it. I tell people that I came in under the nepotism program. Wow. Well, well good for you, because you've had a fabulous career working things that you would have never worked, that tax attorney job. Yep, I made the right decision. But uh, yeah, I stuck with it for 25 years. And those last 10 years were the best working in San Jose on the high tech stuff. I think that's true for most agents. As you gain the seniority, you get the reputation, you get the good cases, you get the good car. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And it all works. And it all works. I love to give you the last word. Having been a security manager as well as an FBI agent and speaking uh, in particular about this offense with David Kern, what it really boils down to is that it's important for employers who have trade secrets to take the steps necessary to protect them. So many firms that I work for didn't take 
security seriously. They pay it lip service. And if you we're going to protect America's secrets, not only from foreign entities, but even within America, keeping companies from, from failing because of in, insiders, that's the real threat. So take security seriously and keep your information limited to those who need to know. And that's the end of the interview. At jerrywilliams.com, you'll find a photo of Russ Atkinson, links to articles about the David Kern trade secret theft case, and an FBI reporting checklist for those who might become a victim of trade secret theft. And of course, there is a link for Russ Atkinson's crime novel, Fatal Dose, inspired by this case. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that you'll share it with your friends, family, and associates. If they're not sure how to listen to a podcast, have them read the post on my website, How to Listen to a Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to FBI Retired Case File Review at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, as well as other podcast apps and YouTube. This podcast is where I talk about FBI true crime. But if you're interested in crime fiction, then you want to join my reader team, where once a month I send out an email where I review FBI crime dramas, books, TV, and movies, and tell you what they get right and what they get wrong. When you join my reader team, I'll send you a colorful list of more than 50 books about the FBI written by the FBI agents who have appeared on this podcast. Nonfiction, crime fiction, true crime, and memoirs. You can join my reader team at jerrywilliams.com, or if you're listening to this episode on a podcast app, there's a link in the description of this episode. Make sure to pick up your copy of FBI Myths and Misconceptions, a manual for armchair detectives, and the crime novels in my FBI Philadelphia Corruption Squad series, Pay to Play and Greedy Givers. All of my books are available wherever books are sold. I want to thank you for listening to the very end, and I hope you come back for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you. Thank you.